All statements and opinions expressed by guests of the Adult in the Room podcast are strictly their own and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs or opinions of the host, producers, or advertisers. All interviews are presented in their most complete possible form in the interests of free speech. No statements should be interpreted as financial, legal, or medical advice. Listener and viewer discretion are strongly advised. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. It's a special edition of the Adult in the Room podcast. Hi, Victoria Taft. And, you know, for years, I have been a fan of the spy thriller genre of popular fiction, uh, starting with Tom Clancy back in the day, starring uh, his protagonist, Jack Ryan. The genre gained a larger core of writers and readers, I think, later. And I especially became just besotted with Vince Flynn's novels and loved his Mitch Rapp character. Look at that. I got the shirt. Mitch Rapp lives. I got it all. And then I brought me to Brad Thor, who, uh, whose character Scott Harvath was, is, is just a wonderful character. I really appreciate him. We go, so we go from uh, Mitch Rapp, who had no experience in the military, to a SEAL team member for Scott Harvath. Ben Coase, Dewey Andreas is a, is a Delta Force guy. Jack Cars, James Reese, SEAL, right? Yeah. And then Don Bentley. And here's Don Bentley. Now you say to yourself, okay, wow, I've seen his name everywhere on these novels. He's a professional touchstone with probably every one of the authors I just mentioned. Uh, but for sure, obviously, Tom Clancy, uh, where he writes, he's on this show. He writes the Jack Ryan novels. And he writes those under the Clancy imprimatur, I guess. And then Don Bentley's own novels with protagonist Matt Drake, his latest novels, Forgotten War. I want to talk a lot about that with him today, which is set in Afghanistan. And, um, and now, oh, and now it's two of my worlds colliding in wonderful, in all wonderfulness. And that is that uh, Don Bentley has just recently been named to take up the mantle and write the uh, novels set forth by Vince Flynn and the Mitch Rapp novels. And uh, he's taking over from Kyle Mills, who <laughs> has done, I mean, I was Leary, and God, Kyle Mills just kicked ass on those novels. He's, he's an amazing. Incredible. He's an incredible author. And now, of course, Don Bentley. And I just want to welcome you to the Adult in the Room podcast, and I'll try not to fangirl out too much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Victoria. You are the first interviewer I've ever seen that's had the Mitch Rapp t-shirt, so I know this is going to be fantastic. Now, this is really weird because Kyle Mills told me via Facebook where to get it. So <laughs> I moved heaven and earth. I got it. But what the funny thing was is the other night I'm in bed. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm, and I'm going, well, I guess I'm just going to check and make sure that shirt's on its way. And it wasn't. And the, I was so bummed because I live in the provinces, wasn't sure what was happening. And I go, you know, I'm really sad um, because I, I sent in the little chat box. Who knew? I, You know, it's all AI. Is anyone really going to read it? And um, so I go, I'm really sad because I'm talking to Don Bentley, the new author of the Vince Flynn novels. And, and I wanted to wear that shirt. And I got a hand note or, you know, real personal email rather and a hand address thing we're overnighting it to you right now and i went that is the correct answer cadet academy 
<laughs> and it was, and we'll put in the show notes where to get one if you're a Mitch Rapp uh, fan, which I am. And I had Vince on my show uh, several times when I was in radio. And anyway, it's pretty cool having you on. Yeah, likewise. That might be the coolest Mitch Rapp story I've heard yet because just my name alone, maybe with $3, get you a cup of coffee. But you put me and Vince Flynn and Mitch Rapp, you get a t-shirt overnighted to you. <laughs> and all proceeds go to Vince Flynn's high school where he he uh, applied his trade. And he wanted to go into the military and he couldn't. He had a, like a pre-existing uh, condition and he couldn't do it. And God bless Mitch Rapp and his character and God bless Vince Flynn. But you know what? Mitch Rapp is alive. So, so let me tell let me tell people about your bio, which I think will probably blow a few socks off of uh, people who don't know. And this is uh, straight from your website, and I think you're hiding your um, really wonderfulness under a bushel. But I'll just give you the bones here, and that is that you spent a decade in the army as an Apache helicopter pilot, and while deployed in Afghanistan, you were awarded the Bronze Star with a V. And uh, following his time in the military, I read here, Don worked as an FBI special agent, focusing on foreign intelligence and counterintelligence, uh, and was a member of the SWAT team with the FBI. And uh, let's see, following your time in the military, you worked uh, you worked in the FBI, and I want to talk about that. And then you went then to work in the private sector, which was basically a defense contractor, working out gadgets, gadgets and stuff for special operators. Um, and... Um, I don't know where to start because I want to ask you about your military career, and I, I want to talk about that, but um, I also want to talk about the excitement that you're doing with the novel. So if you don't mind, could you tell me why you won the Bronze Star with a V in Afghanistan? Yeah, absolutely. And just a little bit of correction there. So I do have a Bronze Star, but the V is for uh, a Valor, and that's uh, for my Air Medal, not the Bronze Star. So. Just oh, quick okay. correction, but oh, the oh uh, well, that, okay, gotcha. That is a big <laughs> thing. So I I didn't realize that. Okay, no, no worries, no worries at Just all. Um, I think like most folks uh, who are in combat and have had and and have been awarded a medal or a ribbon or something, it's usually uh, on a day that things didn't go right. And so for me, um, that day was uh, June twenty eighth, two thousand five, and so. I was uh, the air mission commander for a flight of two Apaches and two Blackhawks, and we were trying to um, go rescue four Navy SEALs who were pinned down by the Taliban. And so that whole um, engagement story is is much better told in uh, Marcus Luttrell's book, Lone Survivor. But long story short, um, there were two MH-47s full, which are Chinooks uh, that fly with the 160th, that were full of SEALs as well ahead of us, and the lead one uh, was shot down, and I couldn't stop it. And so, uh, like I said, went went from a bad day to a really bad day, and um, afterwards I was awarded an Air Medal with V device for it. So, you you have Operation Red Wings, and was the other was the other was that Extortion Seventeen? Was that the other? No. Order? So unfortunately, there have been quite a few Chinooks that have been shot down in Afghanistan, and so it was Operation Red Wings um, as part of the the rescue attempt for Red Wings. There was a, a Chinook for, full of Navy SEALs that was flying ahead of me that was shot down. Um, Extortion Seventeen had happened a number of years later and was a Chinook as well, but was not part of the one sixtieth, and then. 
you go all the way to the beginning of Afghanistan during the initial invasion, there is a operation known as Roberts Ridge, um, where there have been two medals of honor awarded. One is for a Navy SEAL and the other one is for um, a guy named Chapman who tried to rescue a Navy SEAL. And there was a Chinook shot down uh, as part of that rescue attempt as well. So the Chinooks are very capable um, aircraft, but also very big and very prone to getting hit by RPGs if they're hovering in the wrong place, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, is that why they, I mean, I don't know. I know nothing about nothing, but is that when they decided to send in uh, close air support with the Warthogs after that, or were they doing that all along? They're actually doing that. So on my operation, there were two A-10s that were flying overhead um, at the time. The, the issue is that it's it's really, really hard. Um, first off, the, the Taliban are pretty smart. They've been doing it for a long time, and it's really, really hard to see guys on the ground when they're blended in with the trees and when they're um, kind of hidden there. And so even though like the Apache, we had sensors too, but our, during the daytime, the infrared sensor um, wasn't always as effective um, and it was, you know, we couldn't see anything uh, either. And so it was uh, the two A-10s um, that were flying over the head at the time for my operation once the Helicopter was shot down. One of the A-10s rolled in and start started shooting white phosphorus rockets on either side of the crash site to try and keep um, the Taliban off uh, any potential survivors. And um, so the A-10s have saved a lot of lives and uh, certainly saved my bacon on that day too. But unfortunately, they weren't able to stop the shoot down. And you got your uh, bronze star for what aspect of that? Besides just being a badass on a plane, the uh, the air medal with valor that the bronze star was just part of my overall deployment to Afghanistan. The air medal with uh, B device for valor was for that operation, and um, I think it was just basically uh, for staying there. So what what happened is that um, as we were coming in, so this. I have to back up a little bit and tell you that we were the first um, longbows into Afghanistan. And the reason why that's important is the longbow helicopter, the Delta model, is um, is about you know five or 6,000 pounds, maybe a little bit more than that, depending on how it's loaded, heavier than the original uh, Apache, what was called the Alpha model Apache. But when we went to Afghanistan, we had the same engines. And so what that meant is that when you're high, hot, and heavy, which is a summer day in Afghanistan, you're severely power limited. And in fact, uh, we didn't often have enough power to even hover in the summertime. And so what you do when you were loaded is you'd kind of bounce along the ground and try and get through what's called effective transitional lift that happens about 18 or 22 knots before you hit the wall on the other side of of the FARP, which is the place where you get the gas and bullets. And so a lot of times when you would fly in an Apache, you could have, they had little explosives on the wings that would let you blow off what's called the jettisonable stores, like the rocket pods or missiles, if you were carrying them. And so oftentimes you've had your, your front seater. If you're a pilot in command, you flew in the back like I did. And then the co-pilot flew in the front. Usually you would have he or she have their finger on the, the collective had a little button that you could hit that would blow off the stores. And so if you thought you weren't going to have enough power to crash or to take off rather, or if you were coming in for a landing and you got into a point where you didn't have enough power um, either to fly away or cushion the landing, 
you could blow off the stores and it would give you just a little bit more power that hopefully you'd be able to use to kind of cushion as you were crashing. And so the reason why that's important and, and people get kind of mad if you do that. So you try not to either blow off the stores or, or crash the helicopter. They frown on both of those things. And so the reason why this is important is that um, when we launched to try and go get the SEALs, really the only thing we knew was a call sign for them, um, the radio frequency and the last known grid coordinate. And that grid coordinate was very high up on a mountain. And so as you're flying in Afghanistan, what happens is the aircraft you're protecting, usually the Blackhawks fly in front and the Apaches fly in back. So that if the helicopter in front gets shot at, the gunships can kind of turn in and provide suppressing fire. But when you're um, maybe five or six kilometers away from the landing zone where those helicopters are either going to land or they're going to hover and let troops faster about the side, you switch positions. And so the reason why you do that is so that the Apaches can go in first and clear the landing zone. And so what you're looking for are, you know, guys on the ground, or if you get shot at, you're going to start engaging um, the folks on the ground and either clear that landing zone or tell the Blackhawks or Chinooks that it is a hot landing zone. Usually you'd call a hot landing zone cherry and a, and a cold landing zone ice. And so as we were climbing higher and higher, I had to keep slowing down further and further just to maintain enough power to be able to climb up to the top of the mountain. And so I kept calling the Blackhawks in my flight and saying, hey, you got to slow down, you got to slow down. And they would slow down so that we could stay in formation. And when the two Chinooks that were in front of us, and and I called them and said, hey, you've got to slow down or you're going to beat us to the landing zone. And the lead Chinook made the decision to um, go anyway. And he said, you know, we're still going to go to the landing zone. You can clear it once once we get here. And so what happened is that he came to a hover, and um, as the seals threw the fast ropes out and prepared to the fast rope, he got hit by an RPG, and he kind of turned and just kind of rolled down um, the side of the hill and, and crashed, and he killed everybody on board. And so when that happened, I was in the middle of trying to pass the Blackhawks so that I could go ahead of them and clear the landing zone. And it kind of became uh, like a star, a starburst effect where everybody, the, the Blackhawks turned away from the landing zone, which turned into my wingman and I as we were flying. And it was grace of God, we didn't have helicopters um, collide uh, right there. And so I went down um, one valley, my wingman went down another valley and the, um, and I couldn't, couldn't even find him at first because the terrain was so restrictive. And so the um, A-10 that was overhead kind of vectored us back together, which took a while. And in your head, you're just thinking like, I, I can't believe this just happened. I can't believe a helicopter just got shot down. I can't believe I'm getting sh- you know shot at. And it it took like a minute or two to to kind of recage yourself and say, okay, this is this is what normal is now, and we have to get after it. And I remember my front seater at the time saying we have to get back in there and I'm like he's absolutely right this is what we do and so um, I couldn't because the A-10 had shot those rockets to me just everything looked on fire and I couldn't figure out where the crash site was for a while um, we did this thing where the A-10 would shoot a laser on the ground and we would try and slave our sensors to it and find it and finally it got to the point where he was literally overhead and would say turn right stop turn turn left and when we flew over the crash site I still thought he had the wrong 
um, coordinates because there wasn't anything that looked like a helicopter. It was just kind of waves of, of fire and everything um, was burning. And so the only thing um, we could do, my wingman and I, is to just keep flying back and forth over the crash site um, to try and see if we could spot any survivors. And it was really, it was horrible in a, in a whole bunch of different ways. But one of the worst was that we were very, very scared um, to shoot back for fear of accidentally killing any of the Americans that were alive. And so there was more than one time where you're coming to the top of the hill and a guy pops up and, and, and he shot an RPG at us. And my, the Apache has this amazing gun that hangs underneath of it and it can slave to your eyes so wherever you look the eye or the gun looks and so my front seater had the gun and he saw the guy with the rpg and he looked and went to squeeze the trigger and what happens is if the gun turns too far there's a software limit to keep it from shooting so you don't actually shoot your yourself and so he saw the guy squeeze the trigger and then the gun didn't shoot and then as we came back around we were trying to figure out which, and you can imagine the top of the mountain and there's, you know, grass and boulders and, and rocks and trees. And you're like, did it come from that tree or that rock or that? And so the only thing we could keep doing was just flying back and forth um, and trying to draw fire and trying to see if we could find any survivors. And, and we we couldn't and we, we didn't find any. And we kept flying back and over top of that mountain until we ran out of fuel and had to come back and so it's so you say why did i get an air medal with valor I, i'm not sure because i don't feel like i really did um i did my job but i think if you would look in the in the write-up for it it would say something about because we stayed on the crash site under fire um trying to find survivors so it's you know it's a terrible it's a terrible thing when you spend your entire life training to do something and then in that moment in time, everything goes sideways and you can't ever get that moment in time back again. And so, you know, I was only, I don't know, maybe 32 or something at the time. And I remember afterwards thinking, am I ever in my life going to have anything that significant again? Am I ever in my life going to get the opportunity to do it right instead of having it all go wrong? And it was, it was a hard thing. I spent a lot of time uh, reckoning with and frankly... Um, I think that's when I wrote three books um, that didn't sell before I wrote Without Sanction. That was the first book um, that did sell in a two-book deal that led to the Clancy stuff that ultimately led to the Flynn stuff. And I think one of the reasons why Without Sanction did sell was because I was finally brave enough to put in it the kind of things that I was wrestling with. And so at the time, I was had a lot of survivor's guilt and had a lot of the questions that we just talked about. And so my protagonist, Matt Drake, is a DIA case officer, which is a, a fancy way of saying he's a spy. And in the first book, he's wrestling with something that happened in Syria that he lost an asset and his assets family and his best friend was horribly disfigured in a roadside bomb. And he feels responsible for it. And I think in fiction, even though what you're trying to do is tell a really great story, readers can resonate with veracity. Like you see things on the on the page that you believe. And I think you really only see that when the author is willing to put little pieces of, of him or herself in the pages. Yeah, it's true. I mean, when you tell the truth about yourself, um, yeah. people understand, people get it. Like I might screw up on the extortion 17 thing. I was just, I was just like, 
you were at the beginning. I was thinking you went in to help afterwards, but yeah, that that Chinook you saw blow up was that Chinook, and that's why I was like, "Wait, what?" Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. It it um yeah. That's crazy. That's I mean, it's, um how do how do you how do you I I guess for lack of a better word absolve yourself of that uh, survivor's guilt? Do you write through through it? Do you? I know you kept looking for you know the adrenaline rush in, in your life and that sort of thing, but but now that you've come through that, and I do want to talk about that. Um, how how do you write your way through it, or do is that what you do? Yeah, I think it's twofold. I think certainly uh, writing is is very cathartic, but I think in in some of that in my in my fourth Matt Drake Forgotten War was very much cathartic over my feelings of watching. Afghanistan crumble um, as we withdrew for it and watching that, right? They're kind of bookended where the worst until the extortion 17 tragedy that day, June 28, 2005, was the most SEALs in the history of the SEALs were killed on that day. And so you have that on one side and then, and you don't want that and you don't want it to be true, but you think in your set, in your head, well, by God, it happened. Hopefully, at least it meant something. And then you see the crumble from Af- Afghanistan crumble and what we spent 20 years of blood and treasure and, and tears building just collapse. And then you think, well, did it? Did it mean anything? And so that was part of what I tried to figure out as I was writing Forgotten War. But to answer your qu- your first question, you know, when I, when I tell veterans now, so I got out of the Army uh, a long time ago. Now, I got out in 2007. I spent 10 years in. And I tell veterans now that what there's a couple of things you don't realize when you're in the military. And so the, the first one being how much of your sense of purpose and who you are is tied up in what you do. And that you you don't you wouldn't probably be able to put it in the words, but you have this sense that what you do is noble, that it's bigger than you, that it matters, that you're doing something important with your life. And when you leave that and go to a civilian job, you know, I have a, a really good friend who works for Procter & Gamble and for a while he sold diapers. And I have three kids. I'm a big fan of having diapers. But to go from chasing Afghan- bad guys in Afghanistan to selling diapers can be a really hard transition to make. And the second part of that being if you had a bad day and most everybody who went to combat does have a bad day. When you get out of the military, you've separated yourself from the only community of people who actually understand what you've gone through. And so as you're trying to reckon with your sense of purpose and who you are in this bad day, there's nobody there that can walk alongside you and say, hey, I've been through this. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're thinking. And so to answer your question, you know, I was fortunate enough that after... um three years, I got out of the army and spent three years in corporate America and then um, went to the FBI. And then from there went and joined a small company that that was staffed almost completely with veterans and completely with folks from the special operations community. And so the guy who owned that company is, is a man named Nate Self. He's a little bit younger than me. And he was going back to Roberts Ridge that we started talking about in the beginning. He was the leader of that Ranger Quick Reactionary Force whose helicopter was shot down and he lost several men on the shoot down. And then after he took control of the mountainside, um, because there had already been two helicopters shot down on that day, 
they would not send another helicopter until nightfall. And he had several critically um, injured men who died that could have been saved if they would have sent a helicopter. And the only thing he could do was watch them die. And so he, um, I heard his story and he heard my story. And at some point he looked at me and he said, you know, it wasn't your fault. And so that wasn't anything my wife hadn't told me a thousand times or, or anybody else. But it's kind of like if you today got a diagnosis that you had stage four cancer, the person you'd really want to talk to is somebody who made it on the other side of that, who beat stage four cancer. And their way, their words, though they might be the same as, as what anybody else would tell you, would carry more weight um, because they'd been there and then they'd made it out to the other side. And so that's kind of my story. Um, I had to find that community of people who also had had bad days, who um, could kind of provide that absolution, I guess, for lack of a better term. And I try and do that now. You know, one of the things that you said in your latest Matt uh, uh, Drake book is that the uh, Forgotten War. And and you talked a little bit about, I mean, you could tell that you had um, expertise. Uh, one of the things that you said was, well, is the is the minigun going to fire? Is the minigun ready to fire? And uh, your your uh, pilot in, in this particular novel, a woman, uh, says, well, is the, you know, is the, the jet, is the whatever going? Uh, and, uh, oh, I, I, of course, I'm obviously not expert here. So anyway, so, but... And and it was just like, oh, I gosh, I'd never really thought about that. And how could you not? You couldn't shoot a gun unless that particular part was going. And for whatever reason, I've decided I'm going to forget it because I'm whatever. <laughs> but um, but <laughs> having a great day. This is for me a bad day. So I know I'm in good shape. Um, so, but when I just thought, you know, that's really interesting. How you you got to power up the gun in order to use it. it never occurred to me. Heard you in a podcast. Uh, and it was, uh, I think it was definitely Jack Carr podcast, yeah. who I have great admiration for. And, um, and uh, you know, he's talking about having, you were talking about having an extra battery yeah. for, for that, yeah. just that. I'm mean, like, who do, who thinks of those things? Well, not me, yeah. not me. I just, it goes, It's it's got an operating motor and it shoots and that's all I know. But I just appreciate, I just want to let you know, I appreciated that your expertise comes out in your novel and you, especially in this particular one about Afghanistan, you talk about it, you talk, it's the really great storyline. I like the way you combine the seals and the, the juxtaposing your army character with, you know, all this stuff. And the, the, I like the camaraderie and I also like the, you know, making fun of each other that, that, that always makes me laugh. But one your one of your friends and your your protagonist's friends has a pretty hard time, and then you're both commiserating. Uh, your characters are both commiserating in the uh, the uh, bar at the end, the special room, and talking. And basically, the question is, was it worth it? Well, was it worth it? I still, I wish I could just say yes. I I know. I think if I try and look at the positive side of the equation, um, certainly the the 20 years we were in Afghanistan, the lives of the Afghan people were better for it. Um, I think we crushed Al-Qaeda and kept them from attacking America again. If you stack that up on one side and stack up, you know, the, the men and women who lost their lives there and the way it turned out, was it still worth it? 
I'm still not sure. And to be honest, you know, part of me being conflicted about it and is that when, when I saw it crumbling, I kept getting all these, these calls and texts and emails from um, my friends who were veterans who had served there. And they were all asking me that question. And I didn't know what the answer was. And, and the incredible thing about the war on terror in Afghanistan is less than one quarter of 1% of the U.S. population served in Iraq or Afghanistan. And that one quarter of 1%, I'm the anomaly. I only served one tour of duty. Most of those men and women served multiple to- tours of duty um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And for 20 years, they willingly bore our nation's um, burdens. You know, there was no draft. There was no compulsory service. Men and women raised their hands knowing they were going to go into combat. And many of them re-enlisted again after being in combat or re-enlisted many times. And so as a dad, um, my oldest is um, was born shortly after uh, September 11th, and he is actually getting ready to, to graduate from college and he'll be commissioned as a Marine Corps officer. He made poor career choices, so he has to be a Marine. And so, <laughs> you know, as a father, you can look at Afghanistan and say, surely my son shouldn't have to go back there a generation later. Like, surely there should be yeah. something that says we have made enough progress in 20 years that it is, doesn't have to be a generational war. And so I think many, I don't want to speak for all veterans, but I think many veterans you would talk to would be fine with us being done with Afghanistan. But I think we feel like we were owed a better ending than that, that that oh. can't be how we left. And so I think those two things, you know, like I said, are, are a little bit um, at odds with each other, but I think folks are pretty universal on, on that the way it happened was was such in it and it just it it's kind of like it's kind of like Afghanistan or our our perceived success there was the foundation upon which many things were built that you the war in Iraq the the thought that the sacrifices were worth it you know that you know that the folks that didn't come home or even the ones that did that spent years of their lives like my best friend he and I were troop commanders together in Afghanistan and he stayed in just retired as a as a full bird colonel probably three or four years ago he spent at least six years of his life away from his family over those 20 years and that should mean something that there should be a better return on the investment on the sacrifices his family made than what we have now and that that's still something i i struggle to to come to terms with i was talking to a friend one time as a physical he's a trainer and uh, we were talking about he's also a coach and stuff and um, one day I just, you know, we're in the gym and, and he goes, well, you know, I'm just not quite sure how to get to, you know, get at the kids and explain to them, you know, how to achieve every single day. And I go, well, you know, achievement's a different scale every day. And achievement is like today it might be that he, he goes, he runs a 440 just a little, just a little bit faster. And that's going to be a victory for that day. Okay. Or he's going to lift a little bit more. Or he's going to show a little bit more flexibility or footwork increases or whatever in, in uh, you know, efficacy or something. And, and he looked at me and it was like, you know, the, hey, dumb lady in the, in the, in the gym just gave me the the answer that I've been looking for because everybody's got to have a victory every day. Everybody in Afghanistan, if they made things a little bit better, have a victory in Afghanistan, okay? They do. And you're right. They deserved a better end. And I am 
that is forever to the United States shame, dishonored every single person, as far as I'm concerned, who ever served one day in that hellhole on behalf of the United States. And I would say also, just me, and I'm sure I, you might agree, I don't know, but they should have sent the CIA special ops in there. Um, you know, they went to Tora Bora. They should have just found Osama bin Laden. They should have found uh, Zawahiri, and they should have killed those bastards and get the hell out of there because look what happened. Mission creep set in. We're going to have civilizational change. And guess who, whose civilization changed? Ours. And it always seems to happen. You know, it always seems to happen. And it's just, it's such a dishonor. It is. But I, I think the other part I think about is that when, um, when American body bags stop coming home every single day, which is great, what it does, because such a small percentage of the population served, that it takes the fact that men and women are even deployed off the minds of everyday Americans. And so I think without a populace to hold them accountable or to keep their feet to the fire, it, was, it became too easy for our leaders, and both in the military and on the civilian side, on the on politicians are in charge with, with with coming up with national strategy and the, and the military generals are, are in charge of executing it. And I think it let both of them off the hook where it became too easy just to have the status quo and continue to send more people there and continue to send more people there. And presidents come and go and generals come and go and you turn around and look and say, we've been here 20 years and, and yeah. why and what did what did we accomplish in that 20 years? Does, I think, does it give you... Oh, go ahead. I want to hear from no, you. No, no, go ahead. Ah, I was just going to ask you about the military-industrial complex and how that just feeds the beast, but um, I mean, so but I want—I would rather hear from you. Yeah, You're I think interesting one here. I think there are. I, I'm kind of a, a two minds on that too. And, and so, full disclosure, I've spent most of my career out of the military working for defense contractors, and and the ones that I've worked for absolutely um, produce tools that men and women going into harm's way needed and kept them safer. And so from my vantage point, which is obviously limited by my life experience, I, I've never had the sense that certainly the little companies that I worked were somehow able to continue the war in Afghanistan going so that they could make a couple bucks selling stuff to the military. And in my thing, it's been the opposite of that, where we watch, you know, the last company I worked for is an incredible one named Amitrain that um, was, we were the American subsidiary of an Israeli startup. And in fact, I have my old boss, um, I got to talk to two days ago on his first day off uh, from the IDF after Saturday and what that's been like for him and, and what he's been doing. But the founder of that company and what we did was made uniforms and hide sites that made people invisible, that masked their thermal and visual signatures. And the reason why we did that is because our founder was an Israeli special operations guy during the second Lebanon war. And he was leading his team of men into Lebanon at night and thought he was invisible. And the Russians or the, the Iranians had provided Hezbollah with Russian-made thermal sites and he was shot and a couple of his friends were killed. And so he came back from that and said, by God, there has to be a better way and came up with a system that are now saving American lives in combat. And so I certainly understand um, the argument behind the, the military industrial complex, but from what I've seen, is the opposite of that, of we are in harm's way and what can we do to give 
our sons and daughters every advantage they can, every technological overmatch, because we don't want there to be a fair fight, right? We want it to be completely one-sided. And so that's been my perspective on it. I guess my life experience on it. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That, that gives me, you know, that's a, a little happy thought for today. I'm, I, 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 I just wonder, um, what, is your, what does your friend who's in the, ID, in the IDF say? What do you say? Any, any inside dope? Um, trying to censor a little bit on, on what he said. I, I think the high level of what you can say was, um, that last Saturday for eight hours were the worst eight hours of his life. Um, that there were times, um, that they were more surprised than they were during Yom Kippur. And I think there were times, um, where they didn't know how, how big the invasion is and when they were going to be able to stop it. I think the thing that struck me is he was relaying as he was getting off the phone and he was literally calling me to keep him awake so that he could make it home because he'd been on duty for so long. And the the difference between those two organizations is the last thing he told me was was how an operation had gone down and how he had purposely delayed a strike because there were kids nearby and he was willing to give up the target so that the kids could get out of the way. And you contrast that with these barbarians who came into a peace-loving nation solely to target little kids and women and grandmothers. And, it's, and if you can't understand the difference between those two mindsets and why one of those is noble and one of them is barbaric, you know, I, I don't can't know what to you. do for you. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure you must be looking with great interest at the college campuses and some yeah. congressional members standing up there and saying, go, whatever. But um, now uh, we you're you're out of it, except you're writing about it. And uh, how did the Vince Flynn situation come? You kind of glided over it a little bit. Well, and then I wrote a couple of novels and then Tom Clancy's organization came calling. It doesn't just happen like that. Come on, man. Um, <laughs> so, but um, tell me a little bit about that and then how Vince Flynn occurred, yeah. if you don't mind. Yeah, so I think writing is is like any other business in the standpoint that it's your success is probably equal parts showing up every day and working as hard as you can and then being in the right place when there's a little bit of luck and the only reason why you get to take advantage of that luck is because you worked hard enough to be there when when that lightning strikes I guess if you will and so for me was it and kind of going you touched a little bit on on why I write or who I write about um when my first book when without sanction came out I had an interviewer say, are you Matt Drake? And I said, you know, I'm absolutely not Matt Drake, but I've stood in the room with men who could be. And that has been um, my way to to stay, still feel connected to those people that I care about, that when I was a defense contractor, you know, we would go into a team room and listen to them talk and listen to what they're trying to understand exactly how they were doing their mission so that we could tailor the solution as accurate as possible. But at the same time, you get to know these great Americans in a way that most people don't. And I'm like, you know what? I get to know these stories. I should tell some of these stories. And that's why um, in my books, a lot of the, there are a lot of Easter eggs where there are people who are real people, who are real characters that are in my books. Now, because I'm a writer, I like to 
piss them off a little bit. And um, mm-hmm. they in my Clancy books, there's a Green Beret named Jad, and Jad is a real person, but in real <laughs> life, Jad is a Navy SEAL, and so I made him a Green Beret, <laughs> which I think is funny, and he doesn't think it's quite as funny. But you know. Having said that, the um, when I wrote my first two books, I was really fortunate that the editor for my books was also the editor for the Tom Clancy series. And so there's kind of a, a truism in writing that a lot of people can write one book, but very few people can write two books. And the reason is you have your entire life to write that one book. You might have this one burning idea and you write it. And then when you sit down to write your second book, number one, you have to write it in a time frame, which is usually a year or less. Number two, you know what people thought of your first book and you're trying to figure out a way to wall off some of that and the, the people that hated it and, and think you should have never written in the first place. And then the third part is that you know maybe all the ideas you had, you poured into that first book, never thinking it was actually going to get published. And you're like, now what do I do? And so For me, when I turned in my second book, it was kind of proof to my editor that I could write more than one book, just as the the guy, Mike Madden, who had been writing the Clancy books before me, decided he didn't want to write them anymore. And so it was very, you know, part of it, like I said, was showing up and working hard. And then the other part being fortunate to be in the right space at the right time, where my editor asked me if I wanted to write them. And so what that came with, like most great opportunities, is a whole lot more work. And so in order to make that happen, I had to write a book every five months um, for about the last two and a half years. Because this year in 2023, I had three books come out. So Forgotten War was my fourth Matt Drake book. And then Flashpoint was my third Clancy book. And then Weapons Grade was my fourth Clancy book. So the way that happened is I started working on two of those almost a year and a half or two two years ago. And so um, my first book, um, Without Sanction, came out in 2020. And my eighth book, Weapons Grade, just came out in September. So in, in three years, I've had eight books come out, which is pretty crazy. And I have a fantastic editor. But to answer your question, um, I think the Flynn gig was possible because of the Clancy one. And so I had Mark Graney is a friend of mine and is a wonderful writer and has written for Tom Clancy when Tom was still alive and then uh, was the first one to write after Tom passed away. And then he has his Gray Man series, which is fantastic. And he told me when I was when I was trying to figure out if I should take the Clancy deal because I still had a full-time job. And frankly, it didn't pay enough yet for me to be able to do that. And so I knew I'd have to take a gamble on myself and hope I'd be able to work and get um, better advances with subsequent books. And Mark said, if you're offered the opportunity to write one of these legacy series like Clancy or Flynn or W.E.B. Griffin or the Bourne books, he said, that's kind of like the industry putting their stamp of approval on you and saying, this guy can write. And so he said, you know, I'm not promising you riches but I am telling you that if you take this gig, you will not lack for work. You know, whether if you can parlay that into can do it full time, he said, I, you know, I can't promise you that very few people can, but you have passed the test if you write this Clancy book and, and they like it. And so after writing three or four Clancy books, um, I was, I had gotten to the point where I kind of had more ideas than I had time to write. And I knew I would still need to write a legacy series. And Vince Flynn has always been my favorite author. When my second book, oh yeah, yeah, he um, 
Clancy was the one that got me into this thing, but Vince Flynn was the first one who, even before Brad Thor, who post 9-11 had this hero who unabashedly tracked terrorists down and shot him in the face. And I think after 9-11, that is what we all wanted. And Vince's character, Mitch Rapp, embodied that. And I think every one of us who write in this genre takes something from Vince Flynn and probably a lot of our protagonists take something from Mitch Rapp. And so when my second book didn't sell, I actually took my favorite Vince Flynn book, which is Protect and Defend, and I took note cards and and note carded out the entire book, every chapter, yes. every character, a different color. Yes. How and, did he how did he put that together? Yes. You, yes. Yes. It's it's a difference. It's kind of like the difference between looking at a house and looking at the blueprints of the house. And so you can now start to see like what was the genius of what he did? How did, how did he do it? And so as I was, you know, fast forward to about a year ago and I was looking at, okay, I'm a full-time writer. What do I want to work on? You know, and and I was praying about it and talking to my wife and I really was thinking, you know what, if I'm going to write a legacy series, why not see if I can write my favorite series in the entire world? And I thought, you know, it's such a dumb idea. And I talked to my wife, who is the savior of many ideas that I think are dumb. And she's like, why not ask? And so I said, uh, like, you know, I'm not going to ask. I knew Emily Bessler, the editor, a little bit because like you, I was super apprehensive when Kyle took over. And I thought, can anybody do what Vince did? And so he did. And and when there were moments, I call them Mitch moments, moments in each book where I feel like Kyle 100% captured exactly what Vince would have done if he would have written that section. And so every now and then I would just email Emily Bessler as a fan say, I love this section of Kyle's book. I thought he knocked it out of the park. And so I knew her a tiny bit, but certainly not enough to have this conversation. And so I said uh, to my wife, I said, okay, I will talk to my agent about it. And I have a fantastic agent, Scott Miller. And so I, I said, Scott, I've got this crazy idea. And he said, you know what? It's an agent's job to ask. Let me ask her. And so he did. Right and answer. It just, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why he's a great agent, right? And so it was, again, the I got to be in the game because of the work I'd done so far. And then the luck part being Kyle had decided he didn't want to write him anymore. And they were interviewing a couple of different writers um, to take his place. And so I got to talk to Emily for a while. Um, Vince's agent is a guy named Sloan Harris. And the reason why this is important is that writing for Clancy was incredible, but I was one of many writers who had done that and there are all kinds of Tom Clancy books and it's it's much more like a big corporation you got Tom Clancy movies Tom Clancy video games Tom Clancy books with Vince Flynn there's just the books and 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 they did do the one movie on American Assassin and so when I talked to Sloan his agent and Sloan is super to this day protective about Vince will tear up at times as he's talking about Vince and how much he loved him and how much he meant to him but it felt much more like, hey, there's this mom and pop small business and we're thinking about letting you come on board. So let's talk about what that would look like. And it was several conversations. Um, they had looked at my my Clancy books and then read um, some of my Matt Drake books and then came back and said, okay, we want you to come and do this. And so again, like it was, it was very fortunate that um, the luck part that I got to ask the question that I did, but also, the the fact that I was there was kind of the hard work that we talked about before. Sure. So, yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, what was that one thing, or what was one thing that you think that uh, Vince Vince Flynn complaining the names Vince Flynn did in his books that made him just that much different from yeah. any of these other in the genre? So I think what Vince did really, really well is that Mitch Rapp will do things that make all of us squeamish, but he never devolves when he does that. And what I mean by that is Mitch has this moral compass that always points true north that will not he doesn't like if you look at crime fiction a lot like breaking bad or the sopranos or something what those really are is a study of human depravity like how much can a person devolve and what kind of terrible things do they do and mitch does terrible things but he does them to people who need terrible things done to them and he never loses himself in it he never becomes a monster because he has that that sense of right and wrong that there is an absolute right and there's an absolute wrong and that men can success successfully navigate those two i mean i go back again to my friend the and the idf who after what israel is a small country it's 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 you know i can't remember if it's six million or nine million but everybody there knows each other everybody is family everybody and so while my friend had had anybody in his immediate family who was killed two of his co-workers lost their sons in the attack and so if you think if there's anybody who should say i could care less about these kids we're going to prosecute the target and he still exercises that moral restraint because he's a good man and he's doing a bad thing to people who need bad things doing done to them but he's still not losing his humanity and his sense of right and wrong as he's doing them and I think Vince captured that maybe better than any other writer. Doesn't devolve into nihilism. Yes. Um, yeah. Oh, amazing. Uh, I also I always liked the way he wrote um, the dialogue. I thought he did real well. <laughs> I've read uh, Clancy just Clancy just left me cold. This is just like with dialogue, <laughs> but I always enjoyed all the technical stuff. Yeah. And all yeah. the acronyms and you know all that stuff. But uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, I always like. Eh, so he needs help with that. But um, yeah, so, well, I um, wanted to find out a little bit about, uh, didn't you have to try out for the Vince Flynn gig? You had to write some stuff or? So not not so much as, um, like they said, hey, write a, write a sample and, and we'll look at it. It was more, um, I like I said, I'd written seven books by then. And so they knew what my writing was like. And I had... Um, kind of a pretty frank conversation with them where I said, hey, the way my writers fall into one or two camps. So Kyle Mills is pretty famous for doing these extensive outlines where he'll write 42 or 50,000 words before he even writes the book of here's everything that's going to happen. He said, my brain just doesn't work that way. And I said, to the, to the point where my last Clancy book, Weapons Grade, that just came out, when I sat down to write it, I only had five months to write it. And the Clancy book before that, Flashpoint, was a big book. Like it had stuff that took out place in the South China Sea and in Germany. And then I had Jack Ryan Sr. in the White House. And so when my editor and I kind of had the talk, I said, I think I'm going to write a small book this time in the sense that my son goes to Texas A&M. I live um, north of Austin and I drive back and forth and you hit these little tiny Texas towns. And every Texas town has three things. It has a Pizza Hut, a Dairy Queen, and a brand new credit union. I'm like, what does this little town have this brand new credit union? There must be something shady going on. And so I told him I'm going to write this book about just this 
um, like Jack being in this small Texas town and bad stuff happening. And he's like, oh, kind of like a Lee Child Jack Reacher. I'm like, exactly. And so I sit down to write this book and four months into it, he comes back and says, hey, so here's some ideas for the cover and here's some ideas for the title based on this Jack Reacher book you're writing. And I said, well, about that. So now the book is about the Iranians getting nuclear breakout and this crazy thing happened in Israel. And so to his credit, he wrote back and he said, does the Iranian weapons facility get blown up? Because I can put that on the cover. And I'm like, yeah, I think it does. And so the point being that the way I write is more organic, where I'm telling myself the story as I write it. And so when I talked with Emily and that, and Emily's a fantastic editor, she has lots of writers who write both ways. And so it certainly wasn't a surprise to her. But when I talked to to Sloan, you know, part of what I said is like, look, I'm happy to write you a synopsis if that's what you want, but I can almost with 100% certainty tell you that is not what the book is going to be about when I'm done with it. And so to his credit, you know, he read my other books and stuff and they said, you're the guy we want. And so we're going to, we're going to trust you that um, the book that you come out with is going to be the book um, that we're going to want. And that's what I said to him. I was like, look, you can this is another benefit of having worked in the industry as you start to establish a reputation. I said, you can, you can talk to my old editor and he will tell you the links that we went together to make sure that Clancy was happy with every book. And I said, I can't tell you what the book is about, but I can guarantee you that I won't stop until you're happy with the book. And that's what the final product was. And so that was kind of the tryout. It was more, like I said, just the interviews and then reading my prior books. Uh, creative control then you have creative control yeah they're pretty amazing um i i talk with when i sat down to write the book and i'm i don't know i'm just i'm almost at eighty thousand words i think with it now when i sat down to to talk with emily and then with sloan separately i said in broad strokes here's what i think i'm gonna do or where it's gonna be and to their credit they're both like okay sounds great go do it and so you get I think the best, My I have a friend who's, who's a fantastic writer. His name's John Deacon. He writes Westerns. And he was a Golden Glove boxer, um, got a boxing scholarship to Penn State. And he told me once that the purpose of a referee in a boxing match is to worry about your opponent so you don't have to. Your job as a boxer is just to fight as hard as you can. And it's the referee's job to keep your opponent safe. And I think a really great editor is the same way for a writer in that what you do as a writer is sit down and do the craziest thing, push the envelope the absolute farthest you can and know that that editor is going to be kind of your guardrails and help you bring that book back into, if you drift off course, help you bring it back on course so that it is that that incredible thing that you and he or you and she sit down to work on together. And so I know I, I haven't had the pleasure of working with Emily until now, but as you said, like Brad Thor and Jack Carr and and Connor Sullivan and all of these amazing folks have worked with her and, and she's incredible. And she is the guardrails from the standpoint of she was Vince's very first editor and has been the editor for all of Kyle books and everything. And so it gives me a little bit, I, I'll be honest, I'm very nervous about this book because of how much it means to the fans, to be quite honest with you. When I went to... Um, the book launch with Kyle, there were probably a hundred people in this little tiny um, bookstore in Minneapolis because it was Vince's hometown. 
And I recognized some of them from social media, and I knew they didn't live in Minneapolis. And so to start the interview, I said, raise your hand if you've traveled more than an hour to get here tonight. And probably 20, 25 hands went up. And I kept going until five hours. And there were people who had flown in from Atlanta, who had driven from Nebraska, who had come from Chicago, because this series and this character mean so much to them. And so they've all been, when I took over the, the Clancy series, Nobody really cared from the standpoint of he had done, they had done a good enough job that um, everybody believed that another writer could come in and do it. When I, when I took over for Kyle, the fans were very supportive, but it was always some form of welcome to the club, but do not screw this up because this is our favorite <laughs> character ever, absolutely, which is fair. Absolutely. You know, I was uh, the last book uh, Kyle wrote um, for the Vince Flynn novel, whatever. Um, I, I just got it. What is it? Red. Code Red. What is it? Code Red. Code Red. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I was thinking was, yeah, okay, interesting. Um, you know, Mitch gets involved with the Russians and the, you know, they're they're talking about uh, certain kinds of drugs that are on the street now and all that stuff. And that's really interesting. Gives you entree into another sort of uh, place where one can take uh, the investigatory powers and the, you know, shoot them up and get after the bad guys uh, with the character. So I wanted to know, would you have preferred to get the Vince Flynn series after the second of the last in the, in the series that Kyle Mills did or this this last, very last one? Yeah. Um, because there was a huge plot twist and a lot of people were freaked out about it, like me. I think, I think calling that a plot twist might be um, small ball. Like I had a heart attack <laughs> at the end of that book. I know, and I remember, I remember reading it. I looked at my wife and I'm like, I don't know what he's going to do next. Because he didn't just upset the apple cart. Like he threw everything on the ground and stomped on it. And so um, I was actually really nervous when I got done with that. But for, I, I think it was incredible what, Kyle did because it made so so Mike Nash dying made everybody in the series up for grabs and potentially changed the entire course of it. Now what when what Kyle did for his last book Code Red is kind of reset the table and and he told me he did that um, with me in mind because he said I didn't want you to try and have to pick up the pieces after. I had a temper tantrum and left the room and destroyed everything. And so yeah. I'm I'm much more I'm much more glad that that I get to pick up after that. But what he did do is he and I were on tour together and this woman stood up and said, Hey, I loved Mike Nash. He was my favorite character. Is he really dead? Because I wanna believe he's still alive. And Kyle <laughs> looked at me and he's like, Ask God. I'm like, well, what am I gonna do with that? And so I'm glad that um, I'm glad two things. I'm glad I get to pick up uh, where I do, but I'm also in- incredibly glad that I get to work with people like Emily Bessler and Sloan Harris, who told Kyle he didn't even clear that with him. Like he didn't even tell them what he did until he sent the book in, and they have you know enough respect for him <laughs> as the writer in the series. I know. I was like, were you waiting for the text from Emily? That's like, what did you do? And he's like, yeah, I was kind of curious what she was going to say. And I think that's a, that's a really hard line to walk as a writer because when you have this legacy series, you want to give the readers what they love, but yeah. you still have to keep the series fresh or else it starts to feel episodic. And so Kyle was, was very, very good at that. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, <laughs> yeah. Are, are you going to kill off any characters? I mean, all of them, every single one. We're going to reset <laughs> the board. Um, it's. <laughs> I'm working, I'm about uh, a little less than 80,000 words in right now. And um, I can't talk about what I'm doing, both because I'm not allowed to talk about it until Emily sees it. But the second part is, is the way I write is organic and I'm not sure what's going to happen until I'm done. And a lot of times I'll change things in the second or third draft or you'll, rather than going back and fix stuff, I'll have this character the whole way through and in chapter 50, I'll put a note to myself. I'm like, this isn't really working. Just take him out completely. And so there would be, Kyle tells a really funny story about when he agreed to take the the gig and everything was done. He said, well, send me what Vince has because he knew Vince had been working on. And they said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I know you sent me three pages, like go into his office. There's going to be a couple notebooks and a box full of stuff. Just send me all that. And they said, there isn't that. And Kyle's like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, Vince just liked it, pounded out. And so he went the first three pages, that was it. And so I feel like if if people got my stuff, if, if I passed away and they had to start writing it, they'd be like, what was this guy thinking? This is more like a beautiful mind with things just going all over the place than it is a novel. So I don't know which one is worse. How do you keep track of that in your head? You know, it's all in your head. You don't plot it out, right? I don't so, plot it out, but I'm reaching to get my high-tech legal notepad right here that has just... And so what I do is have lots of notepads and number and, uh, pens, and I'll, a lot of times I'll start every day just as almost like a journal entry, and I'll write just bullet points of things I'm thinking, things I think that might happen, things that don't. And it's, and it's really easy. From my FBI days, I got used to using legal pads because it it's, you know, all the pages stay together and you can flip back and see what you've done before. And so that's kind of how I sort through it is I'll go through and look at what I've done before, see what's kind of still hanging out there. There's a really good book called Save the Cat that was written by a guy who wrote spec screenplays for a living. And so he takes kind of the three act structure and nerds it out and says, these are the beats and everything. And I use that for the second draft or sometimes as I'm working on it, but really I'm, I'm as much surprised as what happens as hopefully the reader is. And that's, and that's funny because it's part of the writing process that you have to get comfortable with. Another friend of mine, Nick Petrie, uh, who writes the Drifter series with Peter Ash told me about this and he's like, you have to be comfortable that future Don's going to figure that problem out. Like present Don has to think future Don will figure that out. And I'm like, okay, but I sure wish like future Don would tell present Don what happens because I can't sleep right now because I can't figure out what's going to happen next. And that's, you know, all kidding aside, I think that's one of the things you have to wrestle with as the as a writer is what is your process and then how do you stay comfortable in that process? Because it's what you need to write and it's different for every writer. And if you, like I've tried outlining, I've tried doing it how Kyle does and my brain just locks up and I can't do it. And so I kind of, I once told my wife that um, having a baby was kind of like running a marathon and she didn't particularly like that comparison. But I do think that writing a book is kind of like running a marathon in that when you do the first marathon at mile 20, the wheels come off and you're like, oh my gosh, why did I want to do this? And your second marathon, mile 20 doesn't get any easier, but you know it's coming and you know eventually you'll get to the other side of it and you can finish. And I think that's much more like what my writing process is like. So in addition to Vince Flynn, I also get to write the Clancy books. 
And it's even harder because you have the books that came before you that you have to stay in that universe. And the Clancy is unique in that there are two writers who are writing in it at the same time. And so for me, it was Mark Cameron and his book would always come out six months before mine. And so when I was working on my very first Clancy book, it's called Target Acquired. I was three quarters of the way through this book and I had this great idea for a romantic subplot. And I get this text from Mark and he said, oh, by the way, um, I just turned in my book. And I gave your character a girlfriend and she only has one arm. So good luck with that. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me right now. And so I get his book and read through it. Sure enough, she's got one arm and he brings her home to mom and dad. And so when I got to the end of my book, I texted him and I said, oh, by the way, your character, Jack Ryan Sr. had a stroke and he is in a coma right now. Good luck. And so... um, I texted him back pretty quick after that because Mark Cameron used to be a U.S. Marshal and was a man tracker and is a bear a man. And, and frankly, I'm terrified of him. And so, but there were some come to Jesus moments between the two of us where we were, because I got the, the last laugh because my last two books, and this year only one of his came out and two of my Clancy books. And so both of my Clancy books came out before his next one so I could really stick it to him. And so in Flashpoint, I didn't get to go as as far as Kyle did with Mike Nash, but I had this horrible thing happen to the campus and and all these people were hurt and I didn't know how it was going to end yet because the way I'm writing. Well, he's trying to write his book at the same time and he doesn't know which characters. And so I get this text from him and he's like, can you at least just tell me who's still ambulatory? Can you tell me? I'm like, all right, all right. These are the people that can walk. I don't know about these other people. So I'm sure was... he is is very happy to never have to write a book in the same universe with me again. Oh, so you're not you're not doing any more Clancy. You're just doing. I'm Vince not doing right any now. more Clancy, and he left too. So maybe we both got our fill of each other. Uh, <laughs> I could not do that. I don't know how you guys did that. Oh it my was gosh. a little nuts. It was uh, a little nuts. Oh well, you're you've got a lot of uh, you've you've got a lot of responsibility on your shoulders with the Vince Flynn um, novels now, and uh, I know you're more than up to the task. Yeah, and it really Is was Mitch neat. Flynn, I get or Mitch Rapp lives. Mitch Rapp lives, and I get to. I think I told you this. I can go through it, or you can cut this yeah. out too. But he. Um, so when we went to Minneapolis, I got to meet Lisa and her husband, her new husband. So Lisa is Vince's widow. And we got to have dinner together. And it was fascinating because I got to see Vince through his wife's eyes. And, and, uh, and um, you know, I, I'd known him as a writer. I'd never gotten to meet him or I'd known him as a fan. And then I got to hear kind of Sloan's version of him and then Lisa's of her husband and She said, you know, I knew you were the right guy when you told me the note card story, because for my, you know, my favorite Vince Flynn book, I'd put up note cards and plotted it all out. And she said, when I first met Vince and we started dating, he was working on his second book, um, the one after Term Limits, which um, became his breakout um, bestseller. And she said, and I walked into his apartment. I didn't really understand what he did. And on his dining room table, he had note cards all over the table. And he told me, you know, I'm a writer. This is how I plot it out. And she's like, when you told me that story, it just reminded me of Vince. And and I thought this is the right guy to take his legacy. And so it was pretty amazing um, spending time with her and pretty Mm -hmm. amazing hearing about her husband. Did she say what a smart ass he was? Because he was. 
She said that she <laughs> talked a lot about his dimples and how he could charm and charm anybody. Um, I didn't know Vince was dyslexic, and my wife teaches dyslexia, and so a lot of folks, a lot of dyslexics are extremely creative, but obviously have a problem with writing. She said he absolutely hated the writing part and was um, that was the the biggest struggle for him was to actually put the words down on page. You know, he could think about how the plot was, he could visualize that stuff out, but the mechanics of writing was just agony for him because of his dyslexia. You just think about that, you know, one of the greatest writers of our generation and had a hard time putting words down on paper. It's pretty incredible. Wow. So the and the continuity for the franchise, is that something that you... Uh, does, is, does somebody do that or is that just sort of a Does somebody a do course? that? You are such a child of summer, Victoria. Um, so so when, uh, when I started the Clancy books, I asked Mark Graney, I'm like, is there a Bible for the series? And his answer was cryptic and I should have paid more attention to it. And he said, what I have, I will give you. And it was, and so he sends me this package and it's the, can't find the book but it's one it's dead or alive this clancy book that's about this thick and on the outside of it the the where the loose leaf pages he has multicolored post-it notes all the way through and so when you flip to a note it says jack ryan has brown hair and then you flip a little bit longer and it talks about jack ryan's girlfriend and so he had marked everything in this book that he would use as reference but there was no documents so in my house, we believe in capitalism and I had a 14 year old daughter and I'm like, if you will take this and make it into a Bible, I'll pay you 20 bucks an hour. And so she went through and went through every detail and kind of turned it into a Bible for the rap series. I don't know that Vince had anything, but Kyle is super organized. And so he sent me, I was like, can you email me what you have? And he said, I'll send you a link to a Google drive instead. And so there were like, he has every book in its word format so he can search through it he has another file with the synopsis for every book he has another one with all the characters and stuff and so he created the bible and and has done a really great job with it wow yeah and he's often doing his own series or why did he want yeah. to leave yeah so he had um so kyle wrote his own books and then he wrote for um the jason Bourne universe and then went to um, the Vince Flynn. And so when he was writing for the Jason Bourne universe, uh, or excuse me, before he was writing for the Jason Bourne universe, he wrote this book called Fade. And it's about a guy who was a Navy SEAL. And he said, you know, this whole time he's had that character kind of percolating in his head. And he said, you know, a couple times he had ideas where he thought he could kind of make it into the Mitch Rapp universe and it never worked. And he's like, I've got this character has not left me alone for 20 years. I've got to go back and write uh, the next book with him. And so he he uh, he's doing that. And he also uh, managed to end the the Mitch Rapp series by getting number one on the New York best uh, times bestseller list for Code Red. So he set the bar just really low for me to just kind of hop <laughs> over with my first book. Uh, you were talking about the uh, the best writing um little piece of information, little wisdom that you that you have. And I've heard you say in a podcast before that every time you go to a page, you want to answer a question because that makes it actually makes it worthwhile. There's a reason for it being. Could you explain a little bit about that? Because I know you do. You have writing seminars and that sort of thing. 
Yeah. So this this friend Nick Petrie and I, I told him when he gets done writing, he should be a psychologist or a shrink for writers because we all call him up and it's like you put your head on Nick's lap and tell him things you're worried about and he tells you it'll be okay, it'll be fine. But one of the things that he told me once is that in a really great book, what's happening is a writer's trying to answer a question for themselves in the pages that you're wrestling with something that you don't know the answer to. And so for Forgotten War, it was, uh, you know, it was very much, was it worth it? And for Without Sanction, my first book, it was kind of like, how do you find redemption? How do you, when everything goes wrong, how do you, how do you find redemption? How do you find purpose after that? And so I usually have some idea of what the question is going to be when I start. And then as I'm writing that question, um, gains more clarity or I gain more clarity about the question. And so oftentimes what I'll have, there's another saying in writing that writing is rewriting and that you, so your first draft is bad, right? But you make it better with subsequent drafts. And so a lot of times if that question isn't clear in the first draft by the second or third or something, I'll have figured it out. But I think that's, I think readers can sense that because that again, takes the book from just being something episodic. Like my I'm a kid of the 80s uh, when there was incredible television with shows like The A-Team. And so what was funny is watching my kids discover that on Netflix a couple years ago, and they watched it like crazy for about two days, and then they were done. And I asked my son, I'm like, why? And he said, Dad, the same thing happens every single episode. (laughs) And I'm like, no. And I'm like, yeah, it kind of does. And so I think when you write books, one of the ways you have to give the readers what they came to that book for, but you also have to give them something different every time. And I think one of the ways that you can do that is through that question. What is that question that you as an author and by extension, your characters are wrestling with in that book that's unique to that book? Are you the most curious person you've ever met? I am a very, very curious person, and that um, that that plays in well to my books. and And the reason is is that you have to find something that's driving you as you're writing the book. And so, for instance, for my last book, Weapons Grade, again, being a kid of the '80s and an aviation geek, there was one airplane that was just the coolest one ever, and it was the SR seventy one Blackbird. And so. As I was writing Weapons Grade, it had this big hypersonic thing. I thought, man, it would be so cool if the Blackbird was still flying. And then I said, by God, I'm the writer. It can still be flying. And so I brought it back. But what was so much fun to bring it back is I found this retired two-star Air Force general was an Air Force test pilot. He flew the SR-71. And for two hours, I got to hang out on the phone with him as he told me flying stories. As I'm taking notes like crazy. And so at the end, I'm like, can I make you a character in the book? And he's like, yes, you can. And so I was very, very anxious to hear what he thought of it. And at the end, he emailed me and he said, it made me feel like I was back in the cockpit again. And so that kind of felt good to my heart. But the funniest thing about it is this is a guy, uh, I have a degree in engineering. He, I think, had a master's degree in engineering, was a test pilot, flew 65 different kinds of aircraft. And between the two of us, we could barely get Zoom to work. And so you can fly the SR-71 and still <laughs> not be able to get Zoom to work. And so that that was the tipping point in, in our interview. But yeah, absolutely. 
Well, you can make everything fly. Don Bentley, <laughs> you are going to just do a bang-up job, and I'm sure you already are with the Vince Flynn series. And thank you so much for coming on the Adults in the Room pro, uh, podcast. I can't even talk. Uh, the podcast is uh, appreciative of having you on, and I, yeah, great, great time. Thank you so it much. It has for been being so much fun. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs. And it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed. <laughs>